I'm Michael Beck, the host of the Mike the Mike podcast. If you've been following along with me, it's great to have you back here again. And if you're listening in for the first time, welcome. This is a place to talk about the arts as well as personal well-being. Sometimes I'll talk more about art, all the times I'll talk more about mental and physical health. But regardless of the topic, I hope to encourage greater openness and understanding as I seek to better understand myself and the things and people around me. This is episode 48. I've been approaching my last several episodes with a certain level of apprehension because I understand that these can be touchy and delicate subjects. But for those who have responded and give me feedback, I've been very grateful for the kind words and positive remarks. As usual, I'm not presuming to tell anyone what to believe or how to think about these things. I'm only attempting to convey and articulate what I'm thinking about as accurately as I'm able, and in doing so, I hope that I might be offering some food for thought that would encourage further conversation. My goal and my plan is to bring my podcast up to speed with this and my next episode, and to close out my conversation on spirituality for the time being. I want to pull together some of my thoughts from several previous conversations. I've talked at length about my self-work and going through the process of deconstruction, but I've also been reminded to balance deconstruction with construction. I've talked about with my 27th episode home that I shouldn't seek to only tear everything down, but I need to build things up. It's not just about leaving home, but about creating a new home. It's not just about running away without having something to run to. One might say that it's easier to deconstruct, but without also having a construct, what do you have? With my 39th entry, I am the tortoise and the hare, I mentioned that I can see the value in different routines and disciplines. I could hold myself to reading my Bible every day, for example. However, for me personally, I feel that I've been trying to find greater joy in my spiritual life through attempting to separate and peel back these things from what I feel are joyless legalistic practices, which I must adhere to or else my character should come under scrutiny. This is where I'm at now, and likely won't be where I'm at forever. However, this is where I feel that I need to be in order to come into a more balanced perspective, and again to find more joy in these areas." End quote. Moreover, I listened to an interview of an individual that I believe has a similar personality to me. In contrast to my Protestant Christian religion, if I remember correctly, they said that they identify themselves with Mormonism. The thing that stood out to me and resonated with me most is that they were willing to publicly admit and share how they came to a place where they didn't have a daily spiritual practice. I could really resonate with their testimony, and in hindsight, I realized that so much of the interpersonal and spiritual work that I've been going through makes sense. I had reached a point where all the disciplines were not only not life-giving, but that they were crippling and suffocating me, and I just couldn't do anymore. I used to fit in very well into the world of duty and control, and looked to keep myself in line, and I judged anyone around me who I saw as out of line. I wanted to be seen as a good person, and so much of that, to me, meant receiving validation that I was likable and on the right side of morality. I was terrified that if I was caught doing something wrong, if I wasn't liked by everyone, that this was a sign that I was a failure, a bad person who was fundamentally and irreparably broken, and thus unworthy and undeserving of being loved, but no longer. I cannot settle to live my life this way and to hold this worldview and self-image. My body and mind will not allow me to continue this way of living. Where I once saw comfort and security, I have now seen judgment and oppressiveness. I have shared that I walked away from the church congregation that I have been a part of, and that I have taken a break from church attendance. I did attend a church a couple of times since, but my health has made sitting through a church service or Bible study a small group, a challenge, so I have not kept this up. I assure that I no longer have a daily spiritual practice. Along with this, I have been trying to find contentment and come to a place in which I can believe that I have been doing what I need to for me and that this has been a really healthy part of my growth and spiritual development. I have talked with a number of Christians who don't seem to understand this, and this attributes to part of the struggle that I have with so many of the churches that I have attended the self-identified Christians who I've interacted with and spoken to. I've found that people can be so nosy and overbearing and love to hand out their unsolicited advice like it's gospel. I've already spoken vaguely about this previously, so I now want to give a specific example of what I'm talking about. The first time that I met up with a group for a Bible study after two years, I got talking with a guy about church and how I don't go anywhere. Sharing and asking where someone goes to church is a common topic of conversation amongst Christians. It's like meeting someone at the college you attend and asking them, what's your major? He wasn't telling me what to do necessarily, but I felt like it was more implied. 
he let me know that he didn't agree with my decision to not go to church. And I was just like, is that necessary? I don't care. I wasn't looking for him to validate and approve my decision. I was simply stating what I had chosen to do for myself, which had nothing to do with him. Do you do you and I'll do me. I didn't actually say any of this. It was more like coming up with a clever comeback after the fact. You can share what you believe is best for you, but don't impose it by telling me that you don't agree with what I've decided is best for my personal well-being. And look, I get it. I've shared that I understand that people can be well-meaning and well-intentioned. I believe that it's possible to encourage someone in love and respect, but that's not the feeling that I receive from a lot of people. I believe that some of that just comes down to the appropriate timing and knowing someone on a deeper level and developing enough trust between individuals so there's an understanding that things that are said are done so out of love and that the other person is intending to build you up, not to judge you and tear you down and make you feel bad about yourself. I guess I just felt like it was in poor tact, having joined this group for the first time and having met this guy for the first time. I would have appreciated it much more and I think it would have gone a long way with me if he had instead just seen my coming to the gathering as a point of progress for me and an opportunity to build a relationship and get to know me. But again, I had just met him and we had not developed a rapport and his comments and the way that the conversation went just made me feel defensive, misunderstood, and invalidated. It was not the best first impression of that group. I would have hoped for more encouragement and understanding. I just want people to understand that being pushy or overbearing, making a case for what you believe, and making a point to state that you do not agree with someone's beliefs and life decisions is not the way to love me and others and it's not the kind of support that myself and so many others need when they're just treading water or finally at a point where they've begun taking baby steps forward. You don't tell a child who's first learning to crawl that, you know, I think that going for a run every day is what you should be doing, not even acknowledging what the act of crawling means and the progress that they're making. Getting outside and going for a run is great exercise. It improves sleep, mood, concentration ability during the day, along with reducing the risk of death from heart attack and stroke, cardiovascular disease, a lower risk of developing cancer, and a lower risk of developing neurological diseases. If the baby could talk, it would say, hey, I'm just a baby, give me a break. Yes, I'm saying that I'm like a baby and I encourage you to be like a baby too. If you're thinking, Michael, what the heck are you talking about? Maybe consider listening to my 24th episode with my guest, Wyatt Baldwin, titled Be a Baby, if you have not already. Moving on, in contrast, I found myself feeling pretty at home going to open mic nights every week. Not because there was a lot of quality time or deep conversation with the people, but because there was such low expectation in comparison. Like I may have put expectations on myself, some people might have seemed disappointed if I chose not to perform, and I might have read into that sometimes, like, oh no, I'm letting people down. However, other than that, it's like I could show up at any time that I wanted, or I could not show up at all, and that wasn't a big deal. If I didn't show up and no one reached out to me, I might have felt bad if I had a lot of skin in the game and I put a lot of work and effort into the event, but it felt pretty mutual, like I was getting out of it what I was putting in. Sometimes I would help out with closing after the event was over, but no one asked me or expected me to help out with that. I just volunteered out of old habit and it did give me some time to catch up with people in a more intimate way after the music was no longer playing and I could hear what people were saying. But again, I could come and go doing as I wanted or needed and no one was getting into my business and telling me how I should live my life. In one instance, I remember deciding to leave another event early because I had been sitting or standing for a prolonged period of time for me and it was causing me pain. A friend at the event was kind enough to share that they like that I head out exactly when I need slash want to. They said that's a skill that they want to have. It really meant a lot to me that they were not only understanding, but that they also saw the value of my learned skill. And it was very much a learned skill which I had been working on at the guidance of my therapist. It can be very difficult to leave early or to leave before an event is over. There's a fear that people might take this act the wrong way. They might take it personally or in some way take on a negative view of you and your motives. But I'm learning that it doesn't have to be that way and that maybe people either don't care as much as I think that they do and or can be more understanding than I give them credit for. It takes great courage. It took great courage for me to leave that event early, to listen to my body and to act in accordance with my own needs. And so it was a timely encouragement from my friend that doing what's best for you not only can be done, but that it can be seen as a positive and admirable quality. I previously had a long conversation about going beyond the shallows and engaging people in deeper discussion. 
I said that this was an area that I wish to grow in, and open conversation is something that I would like to propagate by demonstrating and living it out. However, I can't do this if I close myself off and avoid talking to people, so I believe that the point of growth for me might be that I would increase my confidence and that I would become more secure in what I believe to be best for me. I've heard a saying that goes something like, you don't censor, you teach kids to self-censor. I believe that the idea is that you shouldn't go banning or censoring books, films, or other works. That kids should instead be instructed and encouraged in the ways of being discerning, being able to judge right from wrong for themselves, and to sift through what's good for themselves and others and what is not. And in my context, I can't expect people to censor themselves around me. There's no real way of knowing what people will or won't say around me. I could avoid anyone who might judge or criticize my life choices, but this would not only become challenging and complicated, but I would be closing myself off and I would risk becoming very narrow and closed-minded. To do so would be in direct opposition to my desire to learn and grow through open conversation with others. I don't want to be avoidant of people, especially those who care about me, who say things which I don't agree with. I want to grow in my ability to discern when someone is saying something out of love or not, whether or not I necessarily like what they have to say to me or imply about me. However, I'm learning that I can let people speak. I don't have to take it to heart to let their critique or disapproval leave me feeling shameful. As I'm sure I've mentioned, growth and progress is not linear, but I'm working on it. I have often wondered, why does it seem so commonplace and justified to tell people how they should live their very personal lives? However, I believe that would be a conversation for another time. Speaking honestly, I may have before mentioned directly or indirectly that with all the struggles I've endured and I'm still continuing to go through, that has been really challenging my faith. I feel like perhaps it's been more of a challenge than I've ever experienced before. Not only has my chronic health issues been going on for 10 years, but during that time it has only become worse and I have begun experiencing new symptoms, which have further impacted me mentally and impaired what I believe that I'm capable of doing physically. I had lost relationships with people whom I cared deeply about. During historically one of the worst times in the housing market, my parents began putting pressure on me to move out. Mind you, I already didn't feel good about the fact that I was still living with them, and I had begun working towards moving out, and their words and actions further impressed upon me the feeling that I had not been doing enough and that I was a failure. Even prior to that point, my relationship with my parents had begun to sour, then with some of the life changes that I was implementing, I was without so many of the routines and disciplines which I previously looked to for security to check off the boxes to say I'm doing well, I'm in good standing because I've done these things. Up until this point, I didn't feel like I really had any Christians around me who exemplified what it's like to ask the really tough questions, to peer into the void of the unknowing and hold there, to not turn away, but to keep that gaze. I feel like from the churches I've attended, in the past, I've heard a handful of conclusions, and it was almost as though people had come up with these, in their minds, perfectly rational arguments with rational answers, and they passed these down, and it was like, you're just supposed to take these answers as a matter of fact, and if you can do that, then you no longer need to think for yourself and question life, religion, Christianity, and God. And so I was accustomed to clip answers and feeling like I had to simply accept the answers that had been given to me. There certainly were times that I had questions in the past, but I feel like more often than not, I would just fall back on these answers and these conclusions, which I had not necessarily arrived at myself. And with that, I've thought that on some level that I've known and understood God, that I understood what his promises meant for me. But during my time away from church, I had been thinking deeply about things. And as I'll try to explain, as I thought about these things, I found that for me, the rational answers that I heard began to break down and didn't seem to hold water. When I finally found myself away from so many of the distractions and more negative oppressing forces, I was challenged with a religious dilemma. I was searching for something which would somehow sustain me that I could cling to. Although I had been slowly and inevitably inching toward this stage as I had been brooding and meditating on these things, I was now very aware that I was in an existential place categorized by feelings of anxiety or angst with regard to the purpose and meaning of life. During perhaps one of the most existential moments, and mind you this was quite recent, I reached a point of such great longing to be able to reaffirm my faith, to think things through for myself, and to find a compelling argument for my faith which was sufficiently compelling for me. No simple answer or easy pill to swallow would do.
With my 44th episode, The People vs. Chaos, I shared that I believe it's inherently beneficial that we can believe that there is something or someone that's larger and greater than us, larger and greater than us, but also somehow in some way is working for the good of ourselves individually, but also for the good of our planet and all of humankind. I mentioned in my episode The Fear, the Bible says that God works all things together for the good of those who love him, that God is the highest power and authority, and that God is also good and loves me in the truest and fullest sense. But prior to that time, I was asking myself, how can I believe this? How does this make any rational sense? How is it that something, you know, some being, call them God or otherwise, can be working for my good, and at the same time somehow have a hand in causing or permitting me to experience so much evil with all the anxiety, the deep depression, the turmoil, the hardship which I've experienced all the years of my life, and then I've had to endure my chronic health issues for 10 years now. I've tried all that I could to find help. I've had faith, I've believed, and I've prayed for healing, and yet my symptoms have only grown worse and worse. Despite what anyone had told me, this didn't, this doesn't make any sense to me. I thought, how could I come to, how could anyone possibly give me a rational answer that I could find satisfying? During this time, I wrote many things to try and process through my thoughts and feelings. For fear of judgment, I only shared a few of these writings with my closest and most trusted friends, as well as my therapist. I was truly grateful for the support that I received back. I remember some of my friends making a point to encourage me that it was okay to ask these questions, and that it wasn't something that I should feel bad or shameful about. Although easier said than done, I did try not to judge myself too harshly for these thoughts. I do believe that through my questioning and meditation on these things, that at least for now, I have found what I was seeking, and I am so grateful, again to the friends who gave me the encouragement and space that I needed to get there. I will now be sharing about that journey and the conclusions that I have come to. In my personal studies without even looking for it, I stumbled upon a figure who is widely regarded as the father of existentialism, Soren Kierkegaard. I came across the YouTube video, Why You Will Marry the Wrong Person. I imagine that it says something about me that I would be drawn to such a title like a moth to flame. The subject of the video itself is unrelated to this current discussion, so I will not say anything further about it for the sake of time, although I can highly recommend it. However, the video ended with a quote from Kierkegaard, which is how I first discovered his work. Before I read you the quote, I would first like to share some thoughts on this 19th century Danish man from the American historian and former university professor, Michael Surgru. He has his own YouTube channel in which he has kindly uploaded and shared several of his lectures from the 90s. Surgru's lectures were invaluable to me, and I will be sharing many quotes from his lecture in the video, Kierkegaard's Christian Existentialism. Now, Kierkegaard is surely one of the most morbid and emotionally disturbed writers in the history of Western philosophy. I really like him. I find him really fascinating. He's certainly one of the funniest, and he has a thoroughly morbid sense of humor. There are so few philosophers with a good sense of humor. Kierkegaard is one of them. So if you get a chance to read this, read it with a sense of humor, and I think you'll appreciate a great deal more." End quote. And with that, the aforementioned quote goes, Marry and you will regret it. Don't marry, you will also regret it. Marry or don't marry, you will regret it either way. Laugh at the world's foolishness, you will regret it. Weep over it, you will regret it too. Laugh at the world's foolishness or weep over it, you will regret both. Believe a woman, you will regret it. Believe her not, you will also regret it. Hang yourself, you will regret it. Do not hang yourself, and you will regret that too. Hang yourself or don't hang yourself, you will regret it either way. Whether you hang yourself or do not hang yourself, you will regret both. This gentleman is the essence of all philosophy." End quote. <laughs> as, as morbid and disturbed as Kierkegaard may be, it's been said that he's one of the few philosophers one can turn to when the world has badly let them down and we're in need of a friend who can fully understand the dark places we're in once the sentimental illusions that normally keep us going fall away. I have certainly found that to be true for me. Now there's so much to be said and on some level, so much that needs to be said in order to come to a fuller understanding of the concepts behind the philosophical movement that has come to be known as existentialism. With what I've learned thus far, I still find it a challenge to unpack and explain, but in the words of Suriguru, 
what makes Kierkegaard a precursor to existentialism is that he holds a view that there is no criterion for making this decision. In other words, he faces us with the grim, the horrifying reality of criterionless choice. Make a decision. You have no standards upon which to make your decision. Good luck. And you also have no choice on whether to make the decision or not. You must decide. Best of luck. So Kierkegaard leaves us adrift. He cuts us off from our moorings to rationality because he says there is no possible rational decision procedure which could give you grounds for choosing, as Kierkegaard defines it, the moral life, living for the good of society, and the aesthetic life, living for one's own pleasure, to escape boredom. If you want to say that you've developed some rational theory, which shows that only the rational life is the good one, you're presupposing what you are trying to prove. If you didn't presuppose that rationality would be our guide, then what would you say? Nothing. The vast silence of human existence becomes very, very clear when Kierkegaard begins to meditate and think deeply about the choices that human beings must, by the virtue of the human condition, make. What is agonizing, what is awful about this decision, is that you have no grounds for making it, and you have to make it, and your soul is depending upon it, your felicity is depending upon it, it's the most important choice in human life, and you have no star to steer by, and you never will. Then he remarks with a chuckle, what a horrifying universe he's created for us, what a terrifically difficult set of problems he faces us with, and he will accept no compromise, either or. Kierkegaard says, no synthesis, no compromise, this or that, decide which. If you refuse to decide, we know where you stand already. So we're stuck with the ultimate theological problem, and we have no way of solving it, end quote. This is quite an existential quandary, isn't it? A religious dilemma? I could never claim to have meditated on these things to the extent which Kierkegaard had, but to the extent that I have, again, he's felt very much like a friend who could fully understand the dark places that I found myself once the sentimental illusions that normally keep me going had fallen away. And it also happens that Kierkegaard was a devout Christian, a fact that I was rather shocked to learn, and perhaps when I told you that I was going to be talking to you, the father of existentialism, perhaps you were surprised and intrigued by the title of the video, Kierkegaard's Christian Existentialism. The father of existentialism? A devout Christian? However, there is no reason that existentialism and Christianity should be at odds with one another. But as I've shared, I didn't find a great number of very deep existential thinkers within the church that I've attended and grown up in. Sergru continues on, you can see how he, Kierkegaard, disdains Hegelian synthesis of any kind because Hegel would say, well, we'll get a little bit of this, we'll get a little bit of that, we'll get a synthesis, an antithesis, we'll synthesize, end quote. Again, Kierkegaard says that there can be no synthesis, no compromise between rationality and faith. To some extent, I happen to agree with him, and I'll explain my reasons why. If we look at the Jewish and Christian religions specifically, for example, and look at the biblical story of Abraham, I believe you might see what I mean. Siriu says, Now in order to get across to you the difference between the either and the or, the difference between the Enlightenment and Romanticism, the difference between Kant and Kierkegaard, I think that we should choose to examine the theology of these two gentlemen, Kant and Kierkegaard, because they are perfect paradigms of the kind of thinking that they represent. And fortunately for us, Kant and Kierkegaard were considerate enough to both make comments on the same biblical story, and it connects the problem of faith and reason in a way that highlights both the advantages and disadvantages of either position. This is the story of Abraham. You may have heard of this. It's at the beginning of the Bible, early on in the book, so if you haven't finished it, well, perhaps you have seen this particular story. Here's the deal. Abraham is a shepherd, and God makes a covenant with him. Chooses Abraham and says, Abraham, you and your descendants are going to be a chosen people. I have a special connection with you, and to do you a huge favor since you're 100, and your wife, Sarah, is 90. I'm going to send you a child, and then later on in the story, God appears to Abraham and says, I want you to sacrifice your son. No explanation, no explication, no justification. Just God told him to do this. Now the question is, what are we supposed to think about things like that? Shall we take it in an allegorical way? Shall we take it literally? What are we supposed to think about a God who gives you things like a family, and then who, for no obvious reason, and a rather capricious way decides to tell you, now kill him, 
is your only son destroy him as a way of showing how much you like me. It's a horrifying choice, end quote. Now, on a personal note, I recently recall speaking with a friend and I was attempting to make a distinction between the Judeo-Christian face and other ancient religions by saying that, well, we may find the practice of animal sacrifice to be barbaric, but at least they stood in contrast to the other religions who, you know, which practice such things as ritualistic prostitution and human sacrifice. Well, I'm reminded that my case kind of falls flat here. Now, spoiler, in the end of the story, God ends up stopping Abraham at the last moment and provides an animal for him to sacrifice in place of his son. And narratively, this account foreshadows the later account mentioned in the New Testament in which God sacrifices his one and only son, Jesus, by death on the cross. Yet the fact remains that this man, Abraham, had decided and committed to this act, and the implication is that if God had not stopped him, that he would have followed through with it. Getting back to Suguru, he says, Now Kant has a very interesting read on that, and it's in the footnotes. It's in a book called Religion Within the Limits of Reason Alone. And what he says in this footnote, a very important footnote, rather pregnant, is that if it were the case that God should appear to us by some miracle, literally speaking, we couldn't just fall down on our knees and do whatever God told us. We'd have to stop and ask ourselves, is this really God? I mean, that's the kind of thing that a rationalist does. When God appears to me, asks, who are you, writes the kind of free, enlightened rationality characters which give enlightenment, well, I want to know who I'm talking to first. Now, one assumes, I mean, God has never talked to me, so I'm not sure about this, but my sense is, and this is Kierkegaard's sense, that when you see him, you know what you're looking at, right? I mean, there's got to be something about his properties in a visible sense that would let you know that you're dealing with something unusual, but that's not enough for Kant because he wants rational certainty. So Kant says in order to find out if this big thing of light or this burning bush or whatever it is that is talking to you is really God, you've got to find out if he has the properties of God. And what properties does God have? Well, he's perfectly rational, he's perfectly free, you can't imagine him being unfree, and you can't imagine him being irrational. It's like saying God has a lisp, right? He's perfectly free, perfectly rational, perfectly knowledgeable, perfectly good, perfectly virtuous. That means that he always follows the categorical imperative. Why? Because there is one rule for moral behavior. It's true for individual human beings, it's true for nations, but it's also true for the gods and the angels. It goes all the way up the hierarchy right to the boss. And you know he's God because he's perfectly free and perfectly rational, which means that he's perfectly autonomous, he's never heteronomous, he's never moved by anger or jealousy or anything like that. He's the perfect Kantian. In other words, you'll know that you're talking to God when everything that he tells you to do is consistent with a categorical imperative. If some big bright ball of light should ever start talking to you and tells you to do anything that's inconsistent with the categorical imperative, you know that you're talking to the devil or one of the devil's pals because God never violates the categorical imperative. God can't do that. It's not that God can't do that, that's the wrong way of thinking about it, but that blasphemous utterance comes close to being the rationalistic conception of God. God, by virtue of his very nature, by his freedom, by his knowledge, by his goodness, always obeys the categorical imperative. Elsewise, you'd be saying he was vicious and unfree. So now let's start to stop and think about this ball of light that's telling me to sacrifice my son. Can I universalize the maxim? Could I wish that everybody should sacrifice their son whenever a ball of light talks to them? No. So this means that this is inconsistent with the CI, and if it's inconsistent with the categorical imperative, it's not God, because God always obeys the categorical imperative. So whenever burning bushes or balls of light, whatever it is, it starts talking to you, make sure that you test it with a categorical imperative. That's the ultimate rule of morals, and that can never let you down. There's an element of Promethean Greek rationality in the Kantian view which is rather impious. Who are you to question God? Who are you to tell God what the rules are? He's God. There's an element here of rationality of the very limits of faith which is not consistent with a simple arbitrary subjection to the will of God which is characteristic of the most vehement, possibly most fanatical of religious beliefs. Tertullian says, I believe because it is absurd. Kant would wince hearing this. What kind of belief is that? 
any god worth believing is going to be rational. I mean, that's part of what makes him virtuous. Think about the Kantian conception of morality, and then think about the Kantian conception of God. You're going to find out that Kant's God is a Prussian, because Kant's God likes moral rules for the sake of having them. He likes rules and he obeys them perfectly, which is what a Prussian God would do. In other words, Kant's God looks remarkably like Kant, with all of his vices taken away. In other words, he's the super Kant. He always obeys the CI. He continues on. Now let's look at the other alternative from the perspective of Kierkegaard, the romantic approach. Now this is in a section of the book called Fear and Trembling. There's a long passage about Abraham and what a great guy Abraham is. Why you don't sit there and ask God questions. God tells me to do something, he goes do it. That's that. That's what religious faith means. No compromises, no nonsense, none of this Greek rational stuff, none of this presumptuous categorical imperative business. God told me to do something, now I'm going to do it. That's what's great about Abraham. Now, Kierkegaard says not only is that great, but he goes on for about 40 pages telling us what a tremendous thing this is to do, and then he points out that this is unethical. I mean, literally speaking, that killing your son is the kind of thing that most sane people think is evil and actually Kierkegaard himself does. And this is where he makes what might be thought of as an addendum to his theory. It appears that it's not just a two-part separation between the aesthetic life, again, living for one's own pleasure to escape boredom, and the moral life, living for the good of society. It appears that once you get into the moral life, once you make that transition from the either to the or, what you get is the possibility of further, ultimate, and complete transcendence, complete submission to the will of God. And that comes in when we move from the moral life to the religious life to the life of simple but profound faith, which brooks no obstacles and will not even slow down for considerations of rational calculation. So in other words, what Kierkegaard says is that Abraham was one of the greatest men of faith, one of the greatest religious figures in the world, precisely because he is doing what makes no sense. If it made sense, it wouldn't be nearly so good. Can you see, first of all, the romantic elements here, the rejection of rationality, the rejection of reasonable order, the rejection of the Greek humanism that's built right into the Enlightenment project? What he is saying is, on this rock I will build my religious faith. I'm going to be the faithful man of God. The comparison between Kierkegaard and Job, another biblical figure, is not facetious. He is a modern Job. The Enlightenment thinkers, in some respects, are like Job's wife and friends who tell him, you ought to blast me if God isn't doing what you expect and do what you want to do. Kierkegaard, like Job, says no. There's only one God, and he is what he is, and I am what I am. I'm relatively speaking an insect, a worm. I'm not going to tell God how to run the universe. So if God appears to me one day, I wouldn't hold my breath on that, but if he ever appears to me one day, what I'm going to do is I'm going to do exactly what he tells me to do. I'm not going to ask him, is this consistent with a categorical imperative? I'm not going to interrogate him. I'm not going to ask him, are you sure you're running the world right? Because he's God. And once you make that fundamental decision, then you have the true life of faith. You've transcended simple ethical orientations towards the world and gotten to the true religious orientation. So Abraham is the perfectly religious man, the man of faith, and Abraham is the man who has made the either-or choice. And he says, hey, look, it's not pretty. If you wanted something pretty, if you wanted something fun, if you wanted to enjoy yourself, back to the aesthetic life with you. This is agonizing. In other words, not only does he say that Abraham has to agonize and go through all kinds of anguish and thinking about killing his own son who's the pride of his life, he's the source of his happiness, the greatest benefit that God has given him, and now for apparently no reason at all on some sort of a whim, and in this case, God never explains to him why he wants him to kill his son. He says, now God inexplicably wants me to kill him. I'm going to kill my son, one of the greatest crimes, one of the greatest moral transgressions that you can imagine. This is testimony to the enormous power and the awful majesty of God. Morals come from him, they do not run him. We judge whether things are virtuous or good by virtue of whether they are derived from God or not. Anything which is not derived directly from the will of the Almighty, directly from his authoritative revelation, is simply either wrong or superfluous. Faith by itself is sufficient. What is it that Luther says, faith alone will save us? 
Well, he takes Luther's idea of faith alone. He takes Luther's idea that a believing Christian must pluck out the eyes of his reason. And Kierkegaard says, yeah, that's a great idea. By doing that, you show how humble you are. You refrain from that Promethean pride which says, I'm going to be just as rational as God. Instead, you do what you're told because that's your position in the world. That's what the real human condition is. What's agonizing about this is that the same God who gave us the capacity to reason put us in a circumstance where reasoning won't help us because we have to make the criterionless choice between the either and the or, and there is no rational procedure which can allow you to choose between one or the other. So for Kierkegaard, we live in a grim and rather macabre world. There is a terrific amount of misery and pain and irony connected with the best of human lives. The price for escaping the ascetic life or escaping boredom is a life of absolute fidelity to God, and that means that you may well be called upon to do things that are exceedingly unpleasant, even onto the murder of your own child. Kierkegaard says, let us be direct. If we judge Abraham by ethical standards, the man who is willing to kill his own child is a criminal. If we judge him by religious standards, by the single test of faith in God, there is no better man. Either or. Make the choice. And he's not pulling any punches. He's not trying to make it look as if the set of either or choices that we must make is going to be easy. And he explicitly tells us that it will be unpleasant. Perhaps it will even be gruesome. And that's the best that you can hope for. This is what the human condition is. There is a strain of philosophical melancholy in Kierkegaard, a forlornness, a kind of anguish which is very much modern, which seems almost a part of the 20th century. The strange religious formulations are not in keeping with this century, I'll grant that, but the idea that truth is subjectivity, one of Kant's favorite terms. Instead of the drive for objectivity and certainty and rational proof, characteristic of the thinkers of the Enlightenment, Kierkegaard says no. Like any good romantic, truth is subjectivity. I myself will become a person by understanding the choices that I'm confronted with and making them simply on what he calls a leap of faith. How will we jump across this criterionless barrier? You must make the leap of faith, and there is no way of telling whether you will make the crossing safe. No proof, no certainty, no final explanations. Perhaps God has his reasons, the man of faith believes that, but in fact there is no way to tell. We live in a frightening, horrific world where we are faced with miserable, soul-wrenching choices that ultimately amount to a flip of the philosophical coin. The emphasis on subjectivity, the loss of certainty, the loss of orientation, the argument that essentially there is no ultimate rule, no ultimate rational algorithm, which would allow us to discern good from evil, which will allow us to decide what the best and most virtuous life is. These are exceedingly modern ideas. Many of the important thoughts taken by the existentialists are all homage to Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard, for all of his religious craziness, has forced us to stop and think about the implications of being free, autonomous, rational subjects. When we move into the age of Romanticism, and also into the age of the 20th century, the age of anxiety, if you want to call it that, we are faced with simple subjective choices which have no decision procedure. We are forced to make either-or decisions, perhaps not of the fundamental significance of the choice of the aesthetic or the ethical life, but we are faced with choices, many choices which we are informed have no rational grounding, and that means that we are set adrift in a realm of whim, in an area of opinion, of feeling, of taste, of sentiment, which is what Kant describes as wretched anthropology. There is no up, there is no down. You take your best shot and you live the life you choose. This is what Kierkegaard offers to us. A rather grim perspective on the world, justified perhaps by the fact that it makes us think, that increases our own consciousness. I would be very much worried for you if you made all the same decisions as Kierkegaard. I'm not trying to persuade you to do that, but I am trying to persuade you that this is the kind of problem that you do have to confront. It may be, and I have a hunch that it's the case, that not all the important decisions in life offer us a rational decision procedure. Many of the important elements in human wisdom are not derived from any algorithm. They are derived from experience, from acting on your hunches, maybe, from doing the best you can, muddling through a world that is obscure, unclear, and not perfectly delineated by the light of reason. Now on that note, if you've made it thus far and find yourself getting tired, I would suggest to you that this is as good a place as any to stop here. But this is Mike the Michael Beck and not Mike the Michael Surgru. 
So I have things that I have yet to share, but I know that this is a longer episode than what I usually put out. You may wish to pause here and return later, or if you choose not to listen further, that's cool too. I will now be sharing my concluding thoughts. There are some of Kierkegaard's ideas that I can agree with, while there are others that I'm like, I don't know about that Kierkegaard. As suggested by Sugru, it seems abundantly clear to me that Kierkegaard was not mentally well, but with that I'm grateful for his example that you don't need to be an exemplar of good mental and physical health in order to create some meaning and offer something of worth to the world. And I'm grateful that through the legacy that he left behind, that I was encouraged by a person of devout faith to think deeply and to be existential. I'm grateful for how he demonstrated to me that not only can I have my faith and rationality, but that by making space for it and meditating on life's most agonizing questions, that I can grow in my faith, that by redefining what I know and believe to be true, that I can come to a greater openness and acceptance of the unknown and that which I cannot understand. I found there to be a method to his madness, and what resonates with me most and which I found most profound is the irony of Kierkegaard recognizing the limitations of rationality when it comes to spirituality and faith, but how he arrives at his conclusion through agonizing and painstakingly considering the human condition through a rigorous rational process. Obviously there are and will be people who don't agree with his conclusions, however I believe there will be some who can see that the leap of faith that he speaks of is not a blind faith, although these days I feel that the term leap of faith has been made a cliché and watered down to the point to which Kierkegaard's original ideas are completely lost, I believe it's abundantly clear that he is not suggesting that we should stop thinking for ourselves. Quite the opposite. I think that from his work it's also implied that this leap of faith is not a one-and-done decision or process. In one video, speaking on the life and philosophy of Kierkegaard, the host says, For Kierkegaard being religious, is not about joining a local congregation. Faith is a central element of Kierkegaard's thought. It's something that we must live. The Bible was not the last word on faith. It's not something that's all worked out for us, and we can set aside. That's the prejudice of reason and logic speaking. Kierkegaard says that every individual must do the work of faith themselves, and not just once, but again and again through their life. And in Kierkegaard's later work, he speaks of the relationship between the true individual and the broader society, and the nature of this broader society. It began with the review of a novel called The Two Ages. Kierkegaard uses this review to critique the modern age and its steamrolling of the individual. This sensible age, devout of passion, was creating an indifferent and abstract people he called the crowd. In his piece Sickness Onto Death, he speaks of the same theme of the individual and the society from a different angle, as he discusses what he refers to as despair. Despair is the opposite of faith. It's when we are faced with the agonizing choice and choose wrong. It's choosing an inauthentic life rather than the life of the self. Despair is the way of those who gain the world and lose their soul. Kierkegaard says that people who give into despair pawn themselves to the world, and he writes that if we have lived in despair, then whatever else we have won or lost, for you everything is lost. Eternity does not acknowledge you. He criticizes the established religion as having lost its way. One of the bones that Kierkegaard had to pick was political. He attacked the church for being too connected to the state. He argues that this was creating perverse incentives that had nothing to do with being Christian in the Kierkegaardian sense. On the religious side, Kierkegaard had many more things to say. He believed that the popular conception of Christianity demanded too little of its adherence. He argued that congregations keep individuals like children, since the individuals are disinclined to take initiative for their own relationship with God, and Christianity for the existentialist Kierkegaard has always been the individual here, the single individual. Christianity has been reduced to a fashionable tradition that the herd dipped into once a week. This stood in stark contrast to the Herculean struggle with attorney at stake in Kierkegaard's Christianity." End quote. I believe that my inner spiritual work is far from finished or concluded, and that there are still many leaps of faith to be taken, and that I have yet to take. I recognize the significance that I felt in stumbling upon a 19th century existentialist who also happened to be a Christian, and so his thoughts and ideas have challenged me, and at the same time I also acknowledge that by nature of him holding similar beliefs, 
that he also helped to reinforce some of my beliefs. But there are still many more ideas that I have yet to be challenged by, and further from people who hold different beliefs who would not be able to reinforce my beliefs in the same way for that reason. Now, I can be really cynical sometimes, however, I think Kierkegaard has me beat when it comes to a grim perspective of the world. I don't think and I hope that I don't see human existence as macabre as Kierkegaard does, but as I've shared, I have experienced and continue to experience much anguish and hardship. I want to be well. I believe that mentally I'm leaps and bounds from where I've been, but I still struggle. I want to know why I suffer the way that I do and why God allows me to be afflicted by so much evil. I don't believe that God would ask me to do harm onto a son or anyone else. If you should ever witness me attempting to do so, uh, you have every right to be concerned. However, I believe it should not be unexpected for me or any other person of faith that God should call them to undergo great self-sacrifice and personal suffering. This is where I believe that I have been called upon to make the either-or choice and take a leap of faith. I still don't know why I'm allowed to suffer the way that I do. People have tried to give me rational explanations for the evil that befalls myself and others. However, like Kierkegaard, I believe there is no rational explanation for this apart from whatever God may or may not choose to reveal to me. Again, for now, I have chosen to take a leap of faith once more. In spite of how it might look or how I might feel, I'm still choosing to believe that what God says is true and that he loves me. I'm not going to tell God how to do his job. On some level, I must come to accept and find contentment with whatever life he gives me. As such, I would ask for anyone that there would not only be prayers for me for healing, but also that God's will would be done. Just as Job was afflicted, just as Paul had a thorn in his flesh, I must accept whatever God would have for me. Although I do not understand his reasons why, it is not my place to know. God has allowed or permitted me to carry this for as long as I have. I will of course continue to seek healing, but even if it should not come, God is still God, and he is no less faithful. I pray that he would give me peace and hope for the good plans that he has for me, though I do not know what that means and what it will look like. I'm not actively seeking to become a martyr. Just like anybody else, I do not enjoy suffering, but by nature of the human condition, I believe that none of us can avoid the pains of being alive, and none of us can avoid death. It seems to me that rather than being avoidant or trying to run away from this fact, that we'd be better off if we could find some manner of contentment and acceptance of this, that we'd be able to stand and face whatever life brings us, however cruel and unfair it may seem. If I were to take the model that Kierkegaard conceived and attempt to apply it to my current perspective and beliefs, it would look something like this. I believe that Kierkegaard was very insightful, and that perhaps now more than ever, it does appear that so many of us are motivated to avoid boredom and the terrible sounds of the mundane. However, for me, I would say that the aesthetic person, no matter how accomplished or noble they may seem, have not accepted their morality and the human condition, and as such they live only for their own pleasure and attempt to avoid and distract themselves from the gravity of those realities. Again, although they may seem accomplished or noble, their motivations behind their accomplishments are only a matter of personal taste. For others, their taste may lead them towards more taboo or otherwise less dignified practices. For the or, I would say the moral person has come to an acceptance of their morality and the human condition, and so they are willing to face it. However, they are riddled with a sort of fear and anxiety because for them the world is disordered and in chaos. There is no meaning or purpose other than what they can make for themselves. They desperately seek to find their purpose and meaning. Once they believe that they have found it, they hold on to that thing for dear life. Moreover, they believe that if they aren't in control and actively lurking towards progress and towards that end, that it will never come to pass, that everything hinges upon what they themselves are able to strive for and achieve through their own efforts. Now for the religious, and I would also put in their spiritual person, they have come to an acceptance of their morality and the human condition, and so they are willing to face it. However, in contrast with a moral person, they believe that the world is not entirely in chaos or in disorder because they have chosen to believe that there is something bigger than themselves, which is an unalloyed good. As such, in accordance with this force, they do what they can to improve themselves and the world around them, but they do not believe that they are working alone and that the work to be done rests solely upon their shoulders. 
I can't speak for other religions and forms of spirituality, but for those who hold to Judeo-Christian religious beliefs, I believe you have to make amends for the fact that the Torah and the Bible state that morals, as Kierkegaard believed, don't run God, that they come from him. In support of this idea, there are a number of examples in these sacred texts in which individuals are called upon by God to do things that are unethical. Even if you don't hold to either of these theological belief systems, I imagine that in order for a person to hold any set of religious or spiritual beliefs, that they must accept that there are things which we cannot know or fully comprehend. Faith only works when we are willing to accept that it does not and cannot come through rationality alone. I also believe that if we choose to believe that there is a God or some other forces or higher power or powers and that they are also good, that we likely have or will at some point have to somehow work things out in our minds and make amends for all of the evil that I think is perfectly clear and abundantly clear exists in the world. Again, I'm not suggesting that I now have this faith thing all figured out and that I'll never again be prompted to ask questions and re-examine what I believe. I've shared about one recent leap of faith that I've taken, but I believe that I will be called upon again and again to make these agonizing choices and to take leaps of faith for the rest of my life. Perhaps some will understand my faith or have a level of understanding of where I'm coming from. For others like Kant, they may wince at the absurdity of what I'm choosing to believe, and that's okay. People don't have to agree with me or even necessarily understand my choice, but if that's the case, I would hope that we would agree to disagree. In the future, I would like to talk about the idea of non-dualistic thinking, but for now, I will say that I believe that in our thinking and our reasoning, that there needs to be a balance. I'm not suggesting that I believe that there's no truth that exists that can be found. There are truths which I hold and believe in very strongly. I simply wish to recognize that others are going to have different ideas about that. And I'm also not suggesting that we ought to choose between or be guided by either logic or feelings alone. I believe that there needs to be a place for both. And that trouble rises when we either declare that there is no mystery and we can have everything figured out if we're intelligent enough and think long and hard enough, or we say that everything comes down to feelings and so there is nothing that is true and concrete. I'm instead suggesting that we can hold shared and collective facts that we know to be true, while at the same time having compassion and understanding for other people's individual experiences and different ways of thinking about things. Like Kierkegaard, I believe that we are all faced with critical life choices that we must make again and again, and we have no criteria for making these choices, but that we must decide. Perhaps unlike Kierkegaard, I believe that the aforementioned model of the either, or, and religious spiritual is more of a generalization of reality than it is a perfectly black and white picture. I'm not sure that any of us can fully and completely commit to any one of these choices. I believe there is going to be overlaps and they're going to bleed into one another. This is just one man's opinion that is subject to change, but perhaps this gives us something to think about and potentially make us more informed about our current position on these things. Ultimately, rather than allowing life to simply happen to us, I don't believe that we can hope to make any informed decisions without thinking critically and questioning the nature of our lives. As before mentioned, from the churches that I attended and from the Christians that I interacted with, I often found a lot of pushback and fear when it came to asking certain questions, presenting questions in the form of proposing alternate ideas. In hindsight, I find this behavior quite telling, and I believe it leaves some interesting implications. With this, I would like to add some comments to my most recent conversation with my episode, The Fear. It's not uncommon for us to want those closest to us to hold the same or similar beliefs. When people ask questions, we can presume or presuppose that this will lead to the action of someone changing their mind and taking on an alternate perspective. When people ask questions, we can think in fear that this implies they don't agree about a certain thing. If they agree and believe, then what would be the point in asking questions about it? 
However, just because someone asks questions does not mean that they're necessarily going to change their mind, or at least fundamentally change their beliefs. Someone may not be looking to change their mind as much as they may be looking to reaffirm what they believe. However, when there is fear and pushback about asking questions, it can seem like the thing that they're being told, the thing that you believe, is a lie, that someone is somehow incompetent on a subject, or that there is not a good, compelling argument to be made for it. When I think back to the times when I didn't want someone inquiring too much about something, it was because I had either told outright lies that I was somehow withholding information, or I was being asked about a subject that I didn't know well, and so I didn't know how to come up with a good case for it. And I imagine if you think back that the same is true for you. So I hope that we can be encouraging people to think critically and ask questions about the things that they think that they know. Although it can be challenging to see people changing their beliefs and their ways and potentially go on to influence others, I hope that we would be open to that. That our goal and knee-jerk reaction wouldn't be the fear of change and to maintain others would act and think as we do, but instead that our goal would be to see others being autonomous, creative, free-minded individuals. I hope that if we can be considerate and informed enough as to come to a level of confidence in our own beliefs and ways of living, and if we can allow others the opportunity to do the same, that we would all be better off for it. In my 29th episode, Start a War, I share that I believe that toxic shame is not the way to get people to change or conform to certain ways of thinking or behaving. And I'm now sharing that I believe fear to be insufficient for these purposes as well. I don't believe that punishment or negative reinforcement is ultimately ever the way to bring about healing, long-standing change within another human being, or for a person to healthily adopt a set of values and beliefs. Again, in my 44th episode, I discussed how we often think of health in terms of physical and mental well-being, but I asked what about a person's spirituality? I wanted to think about the role spirituality may have to play, and if it might still have some value to offer us. Perhaps this was in some way directed towards people who don't consider themselves spiritual, and who don't ever find themselves thinking about spirituality in their day-to-day -day lives. But with this episode, I'd like to encourage everyone listening, regardless of your beliefs or personal background, to get a little existential. If you're listening to this, I imagine that you're also the kind of person who thinks deeply about a lot of things, but I want to encourage you that it's okay to question and think about the things that you either thought that you knew very well, or that historically those in your family or in your particular circle have seemed to accept as fact. Deconstruction, questioning the values and beliefs of your upbringing and of those around us, doesn't mean that we don't believe or that we're guaranteed to throw those things away. If anything, it can be an opportunity to reaffirm, to refine, to distill down what we actually believe, not for others, but for ourselves. Can we take the fear and channel it into the kind of anxiety or angst that will move us towards thinking more deeply and critically about our own personal lives? Can we not only be individuals separate from the crowd, but informed individuals who can be open and encouraging others to facilitate others and taking steps towards being more informed individuals as well? That feels like a worthy construction to me. What do you think? In the words of U.S. military veteran and singer-songwriter Baker, a.k.a. Grave Dancer, who I happen to stumble upon, I'm honestly not familiar with his work much at all, he says life ain't about to be what it used to be. It's going to be different now. Trauma has happened and you can't expect to get back to a place you used to be. It's about getting back to finding the joys that are still there in life and picking those out. It's a choice. It's a daily choice to want to keep, to keep on keeping on. End quote. There's a great many existential choices to be made, and I hope those are things that every one of us would eventually make space and time to think about. But I understand that life is very, very hard. Many of us are just trying to make it through the day to do enough to provide for ourselves and for those who we are responsible for. If you're receiving this message that 
means that in spite of all of the trials you faced, rather than checking out, you've made the choice today to keep on. Even if you have your reservations and mixed feelings about that, I'm so incredibly grateful that you made that choice. It means the world. That's a huge accomplishment that should not and cannot be understated. It's my hope that you and I would continue to make the choice to keep on for the joys that lie before us today and the joys that lie ahead. With that, I'm going to end the conversation here for now. Thank you, as always, for joining me to consider and contemplate these things with me. Until next time, stay well and take care. Thank you for tuning in to Mike the Mike. If you have any comments or have a suggested topic for a future episode, or if you would like to inquire about joining me on the podcast, you can email me at beckm.podcast at gmail.com, or you can direct message me on Instagram at mikethemike.fm. You can find all those addresses mentioned, as well as any related links and citations for this episode listed in the episode's description.